My name's Steve Gibson. I'm the executive pastor here at the church. And no, I'm not new. I've been here for years. They've just never let me preach on Sunday morning before. I had an elder just last week say to me, Steve, periodically I have people ask why you never preach on Sunday morning. And I said, well, have them come this Sunday and they'll find out. <laughs> no, it's a privilege to open God's word with you this morning. I want to start out by telling a story about a man named Tom. Tom is a gentleman. He's been a part of our congregation for many years. But like everyone else, he had a history before Christ. And like most of us, he made poor choices in life. And he found himself abusing alcohol to the point that he became addicted to alcohol. But Tom had been really doing well. Jesus had transformed his life. He'd been walking with the Lord and things seemed to be going well for Tom. Until one day he's at work. His boss calls him into his office and he says, Tom, you know times are tough. You know the economic times. We're having to downsize. Someone has to go, Tom. Tom had been at this company for 35 years. You can imagine the sorrow, the devastation really that Tom felt. Tom said he entered into a season of life of great depression. And he began hearing an old familiar voice saying, Tom, remember how I made you feel? Just a few drinks, Tom, it won't kill you. In the first chapter of James, James tells us that it is common for when we're going through trials and difficulties in life, Satan will take the opportunity to tempt us to sin. That Satan knows each of our individual weaknesses. You see, for Tom, it's, it's alcohol. For some, it's bursts of anger, outrage. For some, it's lying, cheating, pornography. Whatever it is, Satan knows what it is and at those times when we're the most vulnerable, at those times in life when we're going through difficult situations and trials, Satan will take the opportunity to hit us up, to tempt us, and to try to get us to, to succumb to sin. This morning, I want to turn our Bible to page 8854 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along to James chapter 1. Let me first open us up in prayer. Father God, you know that I am but a human. And you know, Father God, that my feeble attempt at sharing your truth will fail if your spirit doesn't speak in and through me. So this morning, I pray just that. I pray, Lord, that I would speak nothing but truth. And that your spirit, God, would empower it, Father, and it would go forth and change all our hearts and all our lives and make us more like your son, Jesus. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Now the first 12 verses of the first chapter of James, James explains that the trials of life are actually organized and orchestrated by God. That they're actually good for us. That God intends us to go through difficulties of life in order that through those difficulties, he can mold us and make us and change us. To make us like his son. Look at verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So again, James wants you to understand, even though it doesn't feel good, and even though it doesn't seem like a gift, the trial that he has orchestrated for your life to go through is in an attempt for him to mold you and to make you. Now he's gonna begin in verse 13 and talk about the topic of what happens when Satan takes the opportunity to strike you when you're already discouraged. And he's gonna give us four points to remember when you're going through a trial and Satan tempts you to sin. The first one is found in verse 13. James writes, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. You see, James wants you to understand and remember when you're being tempted through a trial that it's not God who's tempting you to sin. James understands that trials and temptations in many ways feel the same. From a human perspective, they're both hard to get through. They're both hard to respond appropriately to. And James understands that uh, from a human perspective, they can seem very similar, but he wants to set the record straight. And he wants to tell you that from God's perspective, they're very different. Because the one trial is a tool of God to mold you and make you. The other temptation to sin is a tool of Satan to destroy you. He goes on and he writes, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, God's not even tempted to tempt you to sin. God and sin are like oil and water, they don't mix. There will never, ever, ever, ever be a time in your life when God desires you to sin. So the first thing he wants you to remember is that when tempted, it's not God who's tempting you. Where's it coming from? Verse 14. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. If you've noticed when we do baptisms up here, we always ask the person who's being baptized, do you renounce Satan? Do you renounce this world? Do you renounce your own evil desires? We do that because scripture speaks that temptations come from one of those three areas. But in actuality, they're really intertwined. Because as I stated earlier, Satan knows our individual weaknesses. And so he knows what's in each of us and the propensities we have towards certain sins. And so he'll, he'll whisper in our ears and try to get us to succumb to the temptation of reverting back to those old patterns of life before Christ. So James says, when tempted, no, it's not from God. No, it's the sin that's within you. Now, the reason that James focuses on the sin that's within you is because he wants you to understand that this side of eternity, you will never be perfect. This side of eternity, you will always have a sin nature that goes wherever you go. You will always have a sin nature that will try to take the opportunity times to tempt you and to cause you to fall back into old patterns of sin. The apostle Paul, in his, throughout his epistles, he mentions this battle in various places, but particularly in Romans 7. He says, I fight it every day, and sometimes I lose. It's a war within us between right and wrong. And James wants you to always be cognizant of the very fact that within you, always on this side of heaven, you'll have the potential to falling back into the old sin nature. So when you're tempted to sin, remember it's not God that's tempting you to sin, but it's the evil nature within you. 
Now, the second point that James wants us to get is that we are to fear sin because sin leads to death. And he's going to use two analogies to explain what he means by this. Notice in verse 14, those two words, dragged away and enticed. In the Greek, those are fishing, technical fishing terms. Dragged away and enticed. Now, when we think of first century fishing, we think of the big net they cast into the water, they pull it up and they have lots of fish. We also know by, from a single verse in Matthew, chapter 17, verse 27, that they also fished sometimes like we do with a single line, the hook at the end, putting the bait on the end. So what James is saying, he's saying, look, like a fisherman takes a string and puts a hook on the end, puts bait, selects his proper bait, the bait that he thinks uh, will tempt you the most, and he casts it out, and he tries to get you to fall to sin, that's the way Satan does. That Satan selects the type of temptation and the moment just when to strike. My daughter Grace and I went fishing uh, last Saturday. We went to the Pier Marquette in Baldwin. Most of you know the salmon this time of year. They're leaving uh, the big pond, Lake Michigan, and they're swimming up the streams and the rivers. They're on a mission. They're on a mission to die to to themselves, but they're also on a mission uh, to lay eggs and start the process of new life. My daughter Grace and I went to try to stop them in their mission. (laughs) Trying's the operative word there. They're hard to catch. I've never caught one yet. I've been many times. When we were born, we were born into the cesspool of sin. Don't take the analogy too. I, I love Lake Michigan, so. And God came along and he saw us in our depravity and he picked us up and he put us in streams of living water and he set a mission within our heart, a mission to die to ourselves in order that we might be resurrected unto new life in the power of the spirit. And what James is saying is Satan hates it and he'll do everything he can to stop you in that mission. And James is saying, don't take the bait. Fear sin, it always leads to death. James wants to hammer this point across, so he's going to use another analogy. Look at verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. He's using the human development process as an example. He's saying just as a baby is conceived in his mother's womb, and he grows naturally, and he's eventually born And then he starts the process again of growing into adulthood and eventually he dies. He's saying that's what sin does. Sin has a life of its own. It's cancerous. Left unchecked, it will absolutely destroy you and will ultimately lead to death. You see, especially when we're in trials, our spiritual intuitiveness, our spiritual eyesight can become blurred and we can began thinking, does it really matter? Does God really care once? What's happening to Tom in that car in the parking lot? He's becoming disillusioned. By the way, Tom must have been early because our staff's never late. But when he's setting in that, you're supposed to laugh at that. (laughs) But when he's setting in, in that car and he's becoming disillusioned and he's thinking, God, where are you? Here I am, I'm at your church and no one's here. I'm doing my part, God. I'm trying to get help. I'm saying no. Where are you? James then says in verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. 
Don't be deceived. That phrase is used four times in the New Testament. And all four times the author is saying, is warning against the propensity we have to take lightly sin, especially when going through trials, to think that perhaps it doesn't matter and forget how deadly it is and how much God hates it. Asaph was the worship leader for, uh, during, for the children of Israel during both King David and King Solomon's reigns. And he's going through this trial in life and he's very discouraged. And he's experiencing uh, this spiritual blindness that we're talking about here. And this is what he writes. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. What's he saying? He's saying, here I have been for all these years, worshiping God's people, leading them in worship. And here I have been trying to follow the decrees of God, trying to please my Lord and my maker, and I'm absolutely miserable. And I look around and I see those who could care less about God, could care less about their decrees, and they're having a party. What's going on, God? Perhaps I've got this thing backwards. Perhaps sin isn't that bad. Perhaps it doesn't lead to death. But then he writes in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. You see, he got in the presence of God and God so kindly wiped his spiritual eyes and gave him clarity to see. Asaph's sin always leads to death. The road that the wicked is on is absolute destruction, no matter what it looks like. James said, when you're going through a trial in life and you're tempted to sin, remember that it's not God tempting you. And remember to fear sin because it always, always leads to some form of spiritual death. James is going to now leave focusing on, uh, he's going to move away from focusing on sin and evil. And he's now going to focus on the goodness of God to give us two more principles to remember. The third principle he wants you to remember is that God is with you and he'll see you through the trial. Look at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. You see, not only is the trial that you're going through in life a gift from God, even though it doesn't feel like it, God gives you gifts in the middle of your trials to see you through. Some of the most memorable, most precious times I've had with my Savior is when I'm going through a trial in life and I think I'm about to fall off the cliff and he whispers in my ear, I'm with you. I've got you covered. I'm right here. I'll see you through. Those are wonderful times. And those are gifts that God gives us to get us through our trials of life. Several years ago, I had uh, several disappointments in life. And for a couple of weeks, 
Satan was speaking and I was listening. He was trying to get me to quit the ministry. He was saying things like, Steve, what have you done? What have you done leaving the business world? You never had these problems before. Are you sure you heard God right? Did he really call you? What do you have to offer this place? For days and days he was talking and I was listening and I woke up one morning and I didn't want to get out of bed. I was down, I was depressed. And I said, God, where are you? And bam, as clear as if you'd have been standing by my bed, he said in my spirit, he said, I'll be your peace in the middle of this storm. And I jumped out of bed and I said, Satan, I'm not listening to you anymore. God said he's with me. And if he's with me, I don't care if you and all your demons in hell are against me. He's stronger. Gifts of God, when you're facing temptations through trial, remember the tempter is not God. Remember to fear sin because it always leads to death. And remember that God is using, that God is with you and he'll get you through this. He then goes on in verse 18 and reminds us of the greatest gift that we've ever been given. He says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. He chose you. God saw you in your depravity and he was passing by and he had mercy on you and he said, come with me. You're mine. I'm gonna take you. I'm gonna mold you. I'm gonna make you. You're mine. You see, you're not getting out of this. This sermon isn't about loss of salvation. If you're truly a Christian, You've truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, and you're seeking to follow him. You can't lose your salvation. One of my favorite verses and passages of scripture is in John 6, where Jesus tells what his mission is all about. Look at what he says. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all, that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will, Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last days. I will please my Father. Jesus is saying, my Father's desire is that everyone he gives me, I'll not lose one of you, and I will raise you up. You see, the problem that many Christians have including myself at times, is that we bail out of the trial. We take the bait. There's some Christians that live their whole life like this. They go through trial after trial after trial, and they fail, and they fail, and they fail. God keeps going, keeps going to to mold them, to make them. J.R. Clinton is an author, a Christian author. He writes about leadership, and he's talking about this concept of Christian maturation through trials, particularly in regards to developing leaders and This is what he says. He says, God uses testing experiences to develop character. A proper godly response allows a leader to learn the fundamental lessons God wants to teach. If the person doesn't learn, he will usually be tested again in the same areas. You should recognize that God is continually developing you over a lifetime. His top priority is to conform you in the image of Christ. His top priority 
I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news this morning, but his top priority is not your comfort. It's really not even your happiness. His top priority is to chisel away, to mold you, to make you. Now I hope that no one thinks I'm taking this lightly. There are some of you here this morning that are going through trials that I cannot even imagine having to go through. And you feel like you're right on the edge of falling off the cliff. James wants you to remember that he's with you and he'll get you through, hang in there. One of my favorite poems is by an unknown author. This poet explains her feeling in regards to the way that God has molded her or him and made them. They write, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. God knows what he's about. He knows what he's doing. He orchestrated the trial in order that you might grow in his image with an ultimate purpose in mind. And that brings us to the final point that James wants us to remember. It's the last part of verse 18. Verse 18 says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that for the purpose that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. John in Revelations chapter 19, he says that God had given him a, vi a vision of a future day in heaven where the Father is presenting Jesus Christ his reward for being obedient to him, for coming to earth and dying for our sins. And the Father calls it his bride. And James, John writes about, he says it unfolds that the Father gives the Son his bride, which includes you and includes me and all people throughout history. Let's see what John says. He says, then I heard, I, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our God, Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You and I are living a life where God is molding and making and chiseling and hammering and hurting us in order that we might become Christ's reward in order that we might be presented to his son, Jesus, as his bride. Notice that word, first fruits, there. That's an Old Testament word. 
During the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, God required that we bring the first of our produce, the first of our, uh, offer, uh, of our uh, increase, the firstborn. It was recognized as the best. God is not presenting his son second best. God is presenting his son the best. And he's taking a lifetime in this world to mold you and make you so that he can present you to Christ. James' final point is that the trials of this life are for the purpose of making you like Christ and presenting you to him as his reward. It's an eternal purpose. So when you're going through life trials and you're tempted to sin, James wants you to remember four things. It's not God who's tempting you. Fear sin because it always leads to death. God is with you, he'll see you through. And there is a final purpose, a glorious purpose for this trial you're going through. As Tom sat in his car here in the parking lot, he prayed this prayer. He said, God, I'm going over to the yellow house one more time. And if, you're, if there's no one there, I'm going straight to the liquor store. Tom, would you please come up and tell us the rest of the story? Good morning, I'm Tom. When I got to the yellow house, the lights were indeed on. My plans to use the money to go to the liquor store was put on hold. Inside, I was greeted warmly by those that were there for the Abundant Life meeting. I realized everyone there was battling a battle. They were all different battles, but the one thing they had in common was not being obedient to God. I wished I could tell you that the Lord met me halfway and cured all my problems, but I can't. The truth is, my Lord had to pursue me relentlessly. In my temptations and failures, I spoke a lot of prayers toward God, but did little listening. Little listening to Him, my godly family, other people around me. But God is kind and gentle and loving and forgiving, and He has taught me to listen. To listen to Him through His Word, through my wife, family, godly friends, he has circled me with help I didn't know existed. I had to move from trusting myself to cure my problems to trusting Jesus to make my decisions for me every day. To realize that the bottle of alcohol got me only more pain and that obedience to Jesus has returned the trust of wife and family. It's scary to let Jesus make my decisions for me every day, but it's turning out beautifully. It's nice to hear my children say, it's good to have you back, Dad. Amen. <clears throat> How long has it been, Tom, since you drank? Over two years. Praise God. He's stronger, isn't he? He is much stronger. To God be the glory. He never promised you a victory without a fight. 
but he always promised he'd show up just in time. And it doesn't matter who or what your enemy is, he's stronger.